session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. The studio number again is 310-441-0555. I'll be doing the book summary today because there was no show Monday night to celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. So the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show next week is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. The Four Agreements. Uh, this is a classic book that actually I've never read the book itself, but have seen the four agreements themselves. And uh, many people, I know you've probably read this one before, but I did want to read it and talk about it next week. So the four agreements, a practical guide to personal freedom by Don Miguel Ruiz. And as always, please send me your suggestions for books to read for the show. Uh, I do get a few a week, so I appreciate everyone who sends those in. All right, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about today is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. And this was a great, great book. It was the second book of his I read. I read the first one he wrote, Sapiens. I didn't read Homo Deus, which I've also heard good things about. And then I got to read this book this past week, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, where uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who is a historian, he looks at 21 different topics that he thinks are very important for all of us to consider for the 21st century. And as a historian, he ties in a lot of history, but also he does speculate. He doesn't say he knows exactly what's going to happen, but he does talk about different possibilities and different realms of life that he thinks is important for all of us to consider and think about. And so the book is broken up into 21 different chapters um, that cover things uh, from immigration to religion to science fiction, justice, work, and different things like that, and looking at how the world and how it is changing, uh, how it could affect these different things. And that's a big theme throughout the book, is realizing how things are changing and how they might change with the advent of things like biotech and infotech and how the world is evolving things can become very different. And just like how before the internet came about, we had no idea of this new potential for this technology and how it would change the world, there's lots of things that are happening now um, with artificial intelligence and different things that can affect how we will live and what life will look like in the near future and the more distant future. And he says we need to think about those things because these things are happening, whether you want to accept them or not, we have to look at the reality of the world and how it is evolving. So to begin with, one of the topics he talks about is work and how work can change over time, just like it has throughout history. But right now we know that 
we hear a lot of things about robots taking jobs, or even before that, you'd hear immigrants taking jobs. But lots of jobs will be able to be done by artificial intelligence, robots, and other types of things. And so we have to be prepared to live in a world where work might not be what work was before. Lots of jobs that people were doing before were, will not be needed anymore. And also there will be new jobs that didn't exist as a new technology will bring new jobs as well. But having that realization that what you think of as work might not be work and we might have to be prepared that because of how rapidly things might change before you might have thought, well, I have this career, I'll have it for 40, 50 years. It's very possible that many careers or many types of jobs will become obsolete over time. And we have to be aware that we can't just assume that things will be fixed and human beings don't like change, but we might have to be ready to change and adapt constantly. And so work itself might look very different than it did before. Um, another very interesting topic for me was terrorism and how he discussed, as the name implies, terrorism. They're basically selling fear. They're trying to make you scared. But we see how the number of people that are killed by terrorists is so small. Uh, since 9-11, it's a very small number of people that have been killed, but the effect it's had on the world is huge. And that's exactly what the terrorists want. They want to make you scared. So, for example, he says that uh, since the attacks of September 11, uh, uh, 2001, terrorists have killed about 50 people in the European Union. Uh, this is each year. Ten, 50 people in the European Union, 10 people in the United States, uh, about 7 people in China, and then a, a lot, lot more, 25,000 people elsewhere in the globe, mostly in Iraq. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Syria. So in the United States, we're talking about just about 10 people a year killed by terrorists. When you look at car accidents, globally, we have something like 1.25 million people being killed from car accidents. And in the United States, 40,000. So we see a number like 10, but then 40,000 for car accidents, but people don't seem to think much about that. Or diabetes and high sugar kills millions of people a year or air pollution is killing millions of people a year, a year. But we don't think about those things because they don't scare us that same way. So he talks about how we give terrorists power when we buy into the fear too much. And even how the media, because they know talking about terrorism is going to make people watch, they talk about it so much and they can build it up to the point where we think it's much more of a threat than it actually is. And he uses a very nice analogy, I thought, about how terrorists don't have a lot of power, but by creating fear, they can make those who have power cause a lot of damage. And he uh, compared this to a fly who is in a china shop. And the fly itself is too weak to pick up even a, a teacup itself. But if it wants to destroy the china shop, what it does is that it finds a bull and it gets in its ear and starts buzzing. And then when that bull goes wild from fear and anger, it could destroy that whole shop. And he's saying that's what's happened after 9-11, where after the attacks, America and other nations, they caused so much drama and, and chaos in the Middle East that it actually helped those same people that had potentially caused uh, the damage to begin with. So they're trying to create big change by creating a big impact from a relatively small um, actual act when you look at it in the big picture. So that was a really interesting chapter for me to read on how he discussed terrorism and how it's our fear that really makes it as big as it is. The more big we make it in our heads and we deal with it in that way, 
the more of a negative impact it actually has on us. And really, in that way, we let the terrorists win. And a very interesting chapter he had was on humility and recognizing, as the, the title of the chapter itself says, you are not the center of the world. And we have to recognize that we think we have all the answers or we think our way of doing things is right. Um, whether it's religion or culture or our nation, but somehow we have this sense that we are better than others or we're doing it the right way. This is even why um, I'll deal with Iranian-American families here, and they'll feel like if their kids become more American, somehow they're becoming worse. They're becoming less moral, living life less the right way, and all these horrible things that come with it. And so they think they have to live their way because that's the right way. There's something righteous about the way we do things, something better than. And so if you get away from that, you're somehow becoming a worse person. You're living life in a worse way. And we always feel so threatened by that. But in that chapter, he discusses how we have to realize that nothing, uh, there's no one group that knows everything or one group that's better than others. Or without them, we sometimes think, well, there's no morality without this religion or without religion or without this nation. Everyone else is doing things in a worse way or whatever it might be, but we have to have that humility that we don't know or we're not better than others and um, we're, we're not as good as we think. Uh, we are just one group and that's who you are and we have to respect the other groups and realize we can learn from one another. And I think especially that issue of humility is so important in today's day and age where we see people becoming so polarized in thinking that their worldview or their view about some topic is the right and only right way, and everyone who disagrees with them is stupid, immoral, a bad person, racist, or whatever other negative term or label it might be related to that topic. But we don't see it as just different opinions or realizing, you know what, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do, or maybe there's much for me to learn from others, or maybe I don't know the right way. Um, but unfortunately, we see that happening more and more, and it makes it harder for people to communicate to come together to have unity and more we're seeing people uh, going into their groups and polarizing and getting further apart and so related to that of humility there's ignorance that you know less than you think and that's another chapter in the book that he talks about that we have to realize as much as we might think we know and understand something we know that throughout history they felt very confident about things they believed like the earth being the center of the universe and then they realized how wrong they were about that so we have to have some level of humility also about just our ignorance that we don't know so much and we can't just get so fixed in the way we see things and the things we believe and even in science we should definitely um, science is a wonderful thing that helps us advance in so many ways and it's supposed to be self-correcting but it can only be self-correcting if we accept that we don't know everything. If we think we know the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and this is the only way it can be, we won't even allow for science to progress because we won't accept new viewpoints or new evidence and information to come into play. Uh, a very important topic that he covered in the book was education. And the title there has change is the only constant. And so... Um, he was talking about how in this world where things are changing so rapidly, where there could be advances in technology that make lots of jobs and even information obsolete, more important than information that we have to drill into children is teaching them how to think and how to be ready to adapt and to learn new things. 
So the old model of education, which still we hold very strongly today, you're seeing some changes, but still it's pretty fixed, is the idea that school is a place where kids get filled up with information. They get filled up with knowledge and the truth, and then that's what they get out of it. But more we have to teach kids how to think, how to adapt, how to learn, how to synthesize new information, because they're going to be living in a world where they're constantly learning new things. So he was saying how before, you could be pretty sure that the skills and information you teach your child will be the same ones that he or she will need 50, 60 years from now at the end of their own life. But now we're living in a very different age where things are changing rapidly. Jobs, as I was mentioning before, are changing. The types of jobs that might even be available will be changing. So we want to teach our kids more how to think and how to adapt and synthesize things more than they need to learn specific facts. And even more than that, yes, knowledge can be good, but we know that the value of knowing certain things is changing because it's so easy to access information in a way that was not before. So thinking is much more important than knowing in a lot of ways. And we want to teach our kids how to think. And that is very important. And hopefully education will move more towards that. Yes, we want to learn things as far as information goes, but thinking and adapting and adjusting to the world is going to be much more valuable in the future. And very interestingly for me, the last chapter in this 21 lessons for the 21st century is meditation. And to me, that was in a way surprising, but I was happy to see that. But he talked about his own experience um, in meditation and how it's changed his life. And he says he meditates two hours every day, which is remarkable. And I think it's nice to hear that because I think when I tell people to meditate more, you hear a lot of things. One is I don't like it or it doesn't work for me or or I don't even believe in it. I don't think it's helpful. So there's that whole thing. And then there's the other side of, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to just sit down and do nothing and just try to focus on my thoughts or my breathing or whatever you want me to do. But here we see a prolific author and who's also a professor in teaching, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, two hours a day he's devoting to meditation because he sees the value of it. And in that chapter, he talks about his own experience, but also recognizing the value of living in the moment and how important that is and how he feels like it's sharpened his mind and his focus so that he can accomplish even more. So again, it doesn't take away from what you do because of the time you invest in a different way. But similarly, when you do physical exercise, it helps you be healthier and actually that can make you sharper as well. But it doesn't take away from your time. It can really add from your time, both in the length of your life, but also how efficient you can be. Um, uh, but he also discusses that with the ways that algorithms and AI might be able to understand us, we almost are in a race to try to understand ourselves. And meditation can be one of the best ways to understand ourselves better. You focus on your breath and you see the thoughts and feelings that come up for you. And sometimes it can even be very painful for many people if they have a lot of pain in their past. But you have those thoughts and feelings come up and you understand yourself better. Know thyself, that very old advice he mentions in the book. And it's almost cliche, but it is so important that we have to know ourselves better. And also he mentions that this is important when we think about living in a world that constantly will be changing and we have to adapt, that the better we know ourselves, the better we can handle those types of changes, the better we can adjust to the world. But the less you know yourself, the harder that will be. So 
I thought it was very interesting and it did make sense in how he he wrote that chapter that the last thing he mentioned to in a way tie it all together last lesson was about meditation so I thought that was fascinating but this book is really interesting you uh, you know you, you see that you're in the hands of a very wise man um, Yuval Noah Harari as he shares these 21 lessons for the 21st century and I know this book was not a psychology book it's much more historical and different but I thought it was relevant and worth talking about so if you haven't read it definitely highly recommend this book 21 lessons for the 21st century by Yuval Noah Harari and again the book of the week for this week is the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz all right we've reached our first commercial break studio number 310-441-0555 we'll be right back Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for having me on sure. the air. Sure. Um, I have a few questions in regard uh, to my six years old. Uh, sorry, six month old uh, daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, she's our first child, and we are living in the U.S and it's been like four years now. Um, so um, my first question, I'm going to give you an example of what happens mm-hmm. and then uh, ask your opinion of uh, whether it's some matter that we need to be concerned about. Uh, when we, We've noticed that uh, within the last month when we are holding her, uh, sometimes she suddenly starts to, um, you know, um, grind her gums together as if she's angry and then she sort of uh, squeezes your skin by her hand for like 10 seconds and make an, an angry noise and then she relaxes and then smiles at you or sometimes we notice that this is this correlates when she's hungry but mm-hmm. instead of crying she does this um mm. Considering her age, we were really concerned about uh, what's going on, why she's doing this. Okay. Do, and is it anything, do we know if she has any stomach issues either, like, or anything related to that? No, she will uh, be a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. Um, following up your uh, uh, father's, um, you know, uh, work and CDs that we listened and also by her pediatrician, mm-hmm. she seems to be a normal baby in terms of weight and uh, length, you know, height of the baby. And um, she had a you know, normal and um, easy birth, not any complications. And uh, she's very alert and easy learning or quick learner, I okay. would say. Uh, but she has this problem that we've noticed recently. Well, I wouldn't consider it a problem, you know, even when you say it's a problem. I don't know exactly what she's doing yet, but maybe she's feeling some kind of discomfort or pain, and that's how she's expressing it. I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that it's a problem. Maybe uh-huh. you know, it's something, it, could it be? Maybe, but I don't hear something so alarming in what you're saying that she maybe is feeling uncomfortable or hungry, and then she'll make an angry face or squeeze your finger. Um, to express that. Is she crying at other times? Well, she's not that kind of baby that 
cries uh, every time unless she stays hungry for a long time or we don't pay attention that much. Mm -hmm. But she's a very easy baby, thanks God. And um, she's just uh, one by one following the milestones. And uh, But in the last month, we noticed this, especially, for example, if I am kissing her and uh, my, you know, the... Um, skin hair sometimes mm -hmm. bothers her she's like showing or expressing her like no that was painful and she suddenly starts making noises and grinding her teeth as if she's angry mm. uh, about that um as if uh, like uh, she's an adult and she's like mm. anxious and angry and grinds her you know teeth together and squeezes your flesh and hand for like 10 seconds very very strongly i'm for not imagine how strong a six-month-old uh, baby can be, mm. but uh, we were concerned about that. Well, I don't, you know, the way you're saying she does it, I'm still not sure, obviously I can't see the baby, but one thing I'm hearing, you know, when you're saying you kiss her and maybe your your beard or the stubble rubs against mm -hmm. her, it might be painful for any baby, but she could have also some sensory motor sensitivity, so uh -huh. it could be affecting her even more, so it might be you might not think it's such a big deal or maybe to another baby they wouldn't respond or react as strongly but maybe she's very sensitive to those things so when you you kiss her and you think it wasn't even that hard it might really bother her and she's showing the strong reaction to that mm -hmm. so i would look be aware of that possibility does she have some kind of sensory motor sensitivity so are there anything else like touch or ways that certain clothes touch her or things that seem to make her uncomfortable not that I okay. can't think of right okay. now. Or what about sounds? Does she seem more sensitive to sounds than other babies? No, when, uh, no not exactly. Okay. Uh, she's very calm, very, um, you know, uh, sort of friendly. But in moments, sometimes she completely uh, goes uh, sort of uh, uh, mad and uh, expresses herself like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes... Let me ask you um, something about that. You say she gets yeah, mad like that. Other than you're saying, okay, you're concerned about how she's doing it and all that, but how does it make you feel when you see her get mad? We're like, she's she's anxious and extremely angry, and she wants just to express that, that mm -hmm. okay, whatever you did that was painful, don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Or, or hey, I'm hungry. Why, why aren't you, you know, feeding me? It's time. Uh, uh, something like that. She yeah. makes that noise. Uh, I see an adult who is angry, and instead of like talking or, uh, you know, saying what's what's wrong, she just uh, has that body language. Right, but which and and how does that feel to you? Very disturbing. We are like, oh, okay, whatever. The problem is, I'm, or issue is, I'm just going to fix that now. Don't get mad or angry. Right. And after that, she is fine. But, you know, I mean, it seems like your your guys' reaction to her having a reaction is very strong. So yeah. she's six months old. You know, she can't write you an email in a calm way yeah. to tell you she's upset. She has to say, ugh, ugh. She, that's how kids 
communicate, especially at six yeah. months old, she doesn't have a repertoire and she also can't handle much. That's why you guys are obviously supposed to take care of everything for her because she can't take care of anything. And also handling things within herself is even hard. She needs you to soothe her, to make her feel good, to calm her down. Yeah. You touch her, you hold her, all those kinds of things because we can't expect much from a six-month-old. So that's yeah. how she's communicating to you guys because that's all they know or they cry you know we can say why does the kid have to cry so much like they have no other way of telling you they're uncomfortable or they need something other than crying and so that's how they're going to communicate and so that's right um my concern is you know in hearing what you're saying is there something going on with her there could be but i also want to be aware of how you and your wife are responding to her emotions to her feelings that if she's expressing it in this way that's how she's expressing it. And as she gets older, let's say when she's two and she starts throwing a tantrum, you might have this if in a similar reaction of, well, if you're upset, let, let us know how you're upset or what you want, but don't throw yourself mm -hmm. on the ground and start screaming, which in yeah. a way makes sense, but that's all a two-year-old can really do. Sometimes they don't know what else to do and that's what happens. They can't handle what's going on inside of them and that's how they react. So I don't want you guys to have this almost like judgmental way of, approaching how she expresses herself because it's going to be you know maybe for lack of a better word what feels like it's immature or you know yeah. there could be a better way you know all the time but when they're so little we have to accept that this is all they can do and actually the book i uh, discussed last monday no drama discipline it talks about this a lot of books will talk about this issue but we have to be very developmentally aware of what we expect from our kids because if we expect our six-month-old to communicate everything very smoothly and clearly and calmly, you know, we're going to uh, assume she's doing something wrong or something is wrong with her when really it's just being a baby. That's how a baby is going to communicate. Right. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the first thing that we do, we try to alleviate the situation. Whether mm -hmm. if she's mm -hmm. hungry, we feed her or we try to uh, soothe her immediately. And after that, everything is good and normal and calm. And we are really happy about uh, how she's adapting to the situation in terms of um, now, um, like it was around um, fifth month old that she started sleeping six hours straight overnight. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything seems to be good. Only this one that I guess uh, a little disturbed or concerned us mm -hmm. that I wanted to talk to you, but um, uh, I guess I got my but uh, this uh, okay. question. And like and, I said, uh, could it be yeah. something? I don't know. You know, maybe it is a little bit uh, odd the way she's expressing it, the way you're describing it. It might be, but just something I felt in what you were saying, and it seems like you and your uh -huh. wife can be so concerned that we see this angry, you know, adult in her, in her, and we're scared maybe of her becoming angry or expressing things in this way. You guys have to be ready that she's going to be expressing things in lots of ways. Uh -huh. And I want you guys just to be sensitive to whatever she's feeling and don't make her feel judged. Well, you shouldn't have said it that way. You shouldn't have done this. There can uh -huh. be time to try to teach her more and more about how to handle her feelings and how to express them in ways that feel better for her and for her relationships and all that. So I'm not saying we ignore that, but we don't want to judge how she's expressing things uh, in the moment. And then another um, element of this I want you both to think about is when you say, for example, angry or anxious, for you and your wife, do you see anger or anxiety in either of you? Uh, mostly me. Okay. Uh, I don't find it in my wife, mm -hmm. but 
uh, me, yes, um, and that goes to the history of my family. My dad was an anxious and always angry mm. uh, dad, and um, I have um, kind of adapted that, but um, through reading and self-educating myself, I'm trying mm-hmm. to control and also uh, sort of uh, minimize that sort of behavior. And now that uh, both of us, we are uh, PhD students here at the, in the U.S., uh, sometimes the stress of the war sure. can, uh, uh, you know, uh, maximize those sort of feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself, I'm currently uh, seeing a therapist. Great. And, um, most of the time when I'm stressed and anxious, I just talk to her, and that really helps. Wonderful. But, That's very good, yeah. yeah. And, but I'm glad you shared that because also I want you to be aware, because of your own family history of dealing with anxiety and anger and then your own personal experience in dealing with it, it could be that when you see any sign of it in her, it's going to freak you out. It's going to scare you of, oh my gosh, this is, what if she becomes this way? What if she becomes like the way I was or even worse, maybe how my family dealt with it? What all those big what ifs when it's just a a baby expressing she's feeling something unpleasant. That's why it's so important as parents and I'm so happy you're going to therapy and you seem uh, very self-aware and then you reflect on all these things, but that as parents to be aware of our own issues and what we've experienced because consciously and unconsciously it's going to affect how we parent our kids. So we're going to uh-huh. overreact maybe to something that's not a big deal because we get scared of what if she becomes that or what if this is the first sign of her becoming that way and so you almost want to take it away, you know, stop her from doing that now because you're afraid of this bigger thing when it could just be this is how a kid expresses herself when she's six months old six months old and doesn't feel good so i want you to think about that a lot in being uh-huh. aware of your own uh, feelings about anxiety and about feelings in general because you're going to pass that on to her or affect how you deal with her feelings correct i see mm-hmm. um thanks uh thank you very much um, sure uh, if you don't mind may i ask you my you know, second question. Yeah, yeah. You know what? We're just about, yeah. uh, you know, you could ask it now, but I'm in about a minute we have to go to commercial. So we'll just go a little bit early because I want to give you the chance to ask um, the question. So just hold on to the line. Let's talk after the break, okay? Sure. Thank you. Sure. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadjalak. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to the caller we were with. Caller, are you still there? Hello. Hello, yes. So we were talking about your six-month-old daughter. Uh, you said you had uh, some other questions, so I wanted to give you a chance. So go ahead. Yeah, so my second question is about um, bathing uh, her. Uh, since her birth, uh, I've been giving her bath, and considering this gender difference um, between us, I was wondering how long it is okay to continue that because she's also a little heavy baby mm-hmm. and it's difficult for my wife to handle the uh, uh, bathing. Uh-huh. So let me ask you first, how do you feel about bathing her? Mm, both of us enjoy. Okay, uh, but you don't have any discomfort about her to feel that it's not okay now? No, no, not at all. Okay, the only reason I asked that is almost uh, in the way you were talking, it felt like the discomfort already, even though she's six months old, of bathing your female uh, child. So I didn't know if you already felt something like that was not right about it. No. Uh, if I if I understood your point, I don't feel or okay. any 
but giving her the base. Okay, okay. And yeah, I think we're also having maybe some um, connection issue because sometimes your voice comes out, so I hope you're able to hear uh, uh-huh. what I'm saying. I don't see any issue, at least for a couple of, um, I mean, depending on maybe two, three years of age, it could still be okay. If more of it uh-huh. goes to your wife, it's okay, but I don't see at all any issue at this time. Um, I know you said she was heavier baby, but so there's no need for you to not be involved with that for now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. So my final question is uh, um, that uh, we are planning to travel to Iran in the coming summer. Mm-hmm. That our baby is going to be one year old. So we were wondering what points uh, we should consider in terms of her upbringing, you know, considering the uh, separation anxiety and other things that might happen that we need to know before this travel sure. or you do not recommend the travel I mean, I don't, at this age. I, I mean, it depends. Like, yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's not a great idea. It, it, it is going to be stressful um, and lead to, you know, there's lots of changes happening, the stress of just traveling itself, being in a new place. I'm sure when you're there, it's just going to be a lot of stimulation. Overall, it's not the it's not great. I don't think I would say you can't do it or you definitely shouldn't do it, but we have to be aware that it is going to cause some um, stress for your, your child, no matter how well you prepare for it. And this is both uh-huh. you and your wife will be traveling with her? Yes, correct. Okay. And how long will you be gone? For a month. For a month. Okay. I mean, you know, yeah, it's going to be tough. You know, we know how important consistency is. We know how important, um, you know, these types of things are. Be ready that my guess is when you go there, you're going to be meeting lots of people. And, of course, exactly. there can be a pressure of feeling like your baby has to be very loving to these family members and friends. And, you know, but remember that for your child, it's going to be a little bit scary. There's, these are all strangers to her and she, she doesn't know these types of things or she shouldn't really know or care about who they are. So we don't want to make her feel uncomfortable about how she interacts uh-huh. with them, that she needs to be nice with them or hug them or kiss them. Uh, if she doesn't want to, I know they're probably going to want to hug and kiss her, but be very aware of her experience. Make sure she's the priority. And I know, of course, you feel that deep down, but a lot of times when we get around our family and friends and people maybe we, we don't know well, or maybe for you it's your in-laws or your, your wife's in-laws, you might feel a pressure that my child has to be a certain way or you know you can almost put that person's feelings over your baby's feelings and i want you to remember always your baby is your priority so your baby's is crying it doesn't want to be in their arms you don't have to say oh no she should be happy hold the baby or whatever you say no you know no, the baby is more important or she doesn't want to hug someone or kiss someone or whatever it is you don't she doesn't have to do any of those things so i'd be very aware of that part too i think there is a lot of pressure families can feel about how they interact with with uh, family members, especially if you haven't seen them for a while, especially if they're your elders. But she's always your priority. And even in the traveling, you know, um, babies will, your baby might cry on the plane. And that can be very stressful. But although people might seem to be getting annoyed and other passengers might not like it, again, try to keep that your priority is your baby. You know, I've seen this a lot. It's very easy to say, but it can be harder to do because in that moment, we can feel uncomfortable. We feel anxious. Maybe we feel like people are judging us as a parent. People are a whole bunch of things. But we have to try our best to stay with our child because that's our priority and that's what's most important. And people are going to say or think whatever they want. But you want to make sure you're staying 
with her because that's obviously the most important thing. Exactly. Even at this age, when we are in crowd or some uh, public places, the moment that we notice she's disturbed and she, or she's overwhelmed with all the information, we just uh, you know leave mm-hmm. and try try to minimize that feeling. So uh, we need to also consider that for the travel. Yeah. Um, and also be aware that if, yes, she's overwhelmed, we don't want to keep her in an overwhelmed place, but it could also be that you guys are getting uncomfortable about her crying or being fussy, and you feel like we should go because it's making you guys feel bad. So uh, it's not always going to be the right thing to do to just leave. Maybe she'll be okay, she'll calm down, and you guys can stay there. But be aware of, is it really her, or is it us that is feeling uncomfortable about people looking or how it is? You know, So it depends on the environment. So... Um, you know, because I do, you mentioned, you know, you have anxiety and you're, you know, you're working on that and that's great. But so that can make you more anxious in these situations where you might react more strongly to the judgment of the other people rather than staying with your child and seeing what's best for her. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's correct. So, uh, I need to also consider and work on that. Sure. Um, thank you so much for your time and having me on the air. Yes, my pleasure and good luck with everything and you know in, in a lot of what I'm hearing you say um, I can feel the anxiety plays a part and it's going to and of course with kids we care so much about them and how they're developing but then uh-huh. because of that we can almost become hyper vigilant looking for things that are not okay because we're just so worried about you know oh is this you know the right milestone is she doing this is she doing that and so be aware that your tendency is going to be to worry when you maybe don't need to worry. So I'm not saying ignore things or deny things, but just be aware of that tendency of yours is going to be to go more in that direction. And so so kind of keep that in mind. How is your wife when it comes to those things? Do you think she's less anxious about your baby? Yeah, she's uh, uh, she's almost like a break. When, whenever she notices that I'm going anxious, she just... Uh, uh, calms me down and okay. no she, she's handling those sort of situation very well great great and so yeah maybe you guys can balance each other a little bit and, which can be helpful as long as you feel like understood by her or there's a conflict but you know I'm glad you have that that at least maybe she's more like you said a break so that if you're worrying it doesn't if you both worry then it could just kind of go off the rails and you guys will freak out but maybe she'll help with that and just you know you're doing the right things you're going to the appointments keeping on track with everything and that's all yeah. you can do, and you know, wish you guys the best uh, with your child and everything else. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure, have thank a good you. day. You too, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. And so, in talking with him, I'm glad he was open about his own um, experiences, what he has been through. And I did mention the book No Drama Discipline, but another book, um, also by Daniel Siegel, that relates to that issue is Parenting from the Inside Out. And so as parents, of course, it's so important to learn about parenting techniques and things to do and things not to do. And there's so much information on that, and that's really important. But also, along with that information on the outside, what you really need to do as a parent is to get in touch with the information inside, meaning your own experience as a child, how your parents were, and who you are as a person now and everything you've been through. Because whether you want to or not, consciously or unconsciously, you're going to parent with those things affecting you. Those things will affect how you are and you'll pass them on to your kids in some way. And it can happen in lots of different ways. But for example, 
um, in a very basic kind of uh, example, if your parents were super strict, very, very, very strict, didn't let you do anything and said, you can't do this, you can't do that, lots of strict rules, lots of punishment, you as a parent very often will do the same thing. So we do see that sometimes, of course, an abusive parent, they'll abuse their kid, then that kid will likely abuse their child as well. So you might become a super strict parent, which will be based on what you experience as a child. Or some parents go to the other extreme. They'll see their baby and remember themselves as a child wishing they could do whatever they want. And so they'll be too permissive and they'll create a household with no boundaries and no rules because they felt like they never could do what they wanted to do. So they never want to say no to their own kid. And so now their child is doing whatever they want and the household lacks the structure and boundaries that the child actually needs for their own development, but the parent can feel very good because in a way it's dealing with their own past pain of living in a home that was too strict and they have told themselves consciously or unconsciously that I'm never going to be that kind of parent. I'm not going to make my child feel that way. Or even things when it comes to sibling rivalry. If you were maybe the older child and you felt like your parents favored the younger one or let them get away with too much, now when you have a few kids of your own, that could affect the way you are going to deal with them. You might favor the older kid because you remember how unfair it was and now you're going to go to the other extreme. Or you might identify with that older kid and some negative feelings you have about yourself. You'll be meaner to that child and nicer to the younger one. So there's so many ways that these things could play out. And actually that's another way that it happens is because our child, uh, of course, and our children can remind us of ourselves that can trigger things or remind us of our own family members that can trigger things that we experience in a different way. Um, again, looking at childhood history, you'll hear stories where a young mom or a mom will say she can't connect with her son. Let's say she had a boy. She's having a hard time connecting with the boy. She says, I don't even, it's crazy, but I don't feel love for him. And that can feel really bad. Of course, the mom can feel so guilty. How can I not feel love for this child? I felt love for my first child, but for some reason, I'm having an issue connecting emotionally to this child. And there's a lot of guilt and shame that mom might experience. But then if you look at her childhood, slowly what she might become aware of is that because when she was a child herself and her baby brother died when she was very young, and now this new baby boy is triggering and reminding her of that baby, there's something inside of her that's making her afraid to connect to this child because she's afraid she's going to lose this child too. And it's too scary to allow herself to feel that love and connection and build that attachment with this baby. So because she hasn't been able to heal and let go of that loss from her past, she brings it with her and that's interfering with her ability to connect with her child now. So it's not about her being a bad mother, not having a maternal instinct, not being a loving person, but there's something getting in the way, some past trauma that she's not aware of that's affecting the way that she bonds with this child. So we have to be aware of these things just in general. I mentioned it when talking about the book today, but know thyself, understanding ourselves. First, before even you have the children in your romantic relationships, these things are going to play out where things from your past, things you've experienced are going to affect the way you love and create love with your partner. But then in some ways, even more strongly when you have children, because they are children and they're going to bring up your own childhood issues even more, you have to be aware of the ways that if you're not 
haven't dealt with the things from your past, they're going to absolutely affect how you parent. And I think a lot of times parents think that, no, I, I know what happened to me or whatever happened to me doesn't matter. I'm going to be different or I'm going to just parent the right way. But we have to be aware of how much we get affected by things that happen and how deeply our children are going to touch on our most sensitive points, are going to bring out the biggest emotions we have. Again, using uh, the romantic relationship as an example, many people can feel like calm, okay, good people in their day-to-day life, and then they enter into a romantic relationship and they can feel like all their craziness comes out because relationships trigger all of these deeper insecurities, feelings, past issues, and everything else we haven't dealt with in ways that regular day-to-day interactions don't. And so all of a sudden, wow, I didn't even know I had all this stuff, but it's being triggered by the romantic relationship. And similarly, as a parent, they're going to trigger on it even more. They frustrate you, they anger you, they make you feel so strongly the loving feelings, but also even angry feelings. And because of that, even more will get stirred up. So as parents, we have to be very aware of what we've been through, what we've experienced, and really try to work on those issues. Obviously, if we can before we become parents, but even you can do it as a parent, looking at what you're dealing with. And I was very happy that that father that called, he said he is going to his own therapy, and and I'm sure that's helpful both to him as an individual, but also as a spouse and a father, and that's wonderful. So we have to be aware of what we've been through because whether or not we want to accept it, it's going to affect the way we parent our kids. All right, let's go to our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi Dr. Fadi. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, my question is regarding the son. He just turned 12 uh, last month, and uh, I was confused already. He's a really good boy. Uh, we have some probably just got him an Xbox. He was just talking about getting Xbox. Everybody has Xbox. My friends have Xbox. But we have a limitation for him for everything, like iPad or playing with Xbox, like for one hour. Mm-hmm. And now he is uh, with his. Uh, Friends, and now they can buy people together because they're close to us in the neighborhood. Um, he wants to buy with them and go to uh, like a town center, to like a shopping center, like a mile away. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, how should I um, interfere with that? How should I do? I mean, should I let him go spend time with his friends? By themselves, or what should I do with that? Well, before we talk about what you should or shouldn't do, what are your concerns? Because it seems like you're not sure you want to let him. Um, I don't know. Sometimes he comes home and says, Mom, uh, my friend, they, you know, they, they, um, they, they were just uh, ringing the bell and run away, and then they were throwing the cops, uh, like, you know, the empty cops down in the... Um, you know, anywhere, just throw them away somewhere, and then like everything, this kind of stuff. But like, you know what? This is not the appropriate stuff that they do. Um, sure, I know you. You know these are not really good. You know, if they have a camera, they can capture your picture and they can see you. And you know, they know the person who you know ringing the bell. And um, those kind of stuff, I, I'm, I'm not sure. With, 
uh, them with different attitudes, with different uh, personality, is it going to affect him or... Well, affect him, yes. Of course, everything's going to affect him. Um, But I would, you know, want to make sure what you're doing is having conversations with him about what's going on because it'll be very hard to stop him from having certain friends. Maybe you can limit sometimes how much time he spends with them. But more we have to recognize he's going to make a lot of these decisions on his own about who to spend time with and what to do and what not to do. And we want to trust or give him that confidence that he can make the right choices so what does he say about these friends and the things that they're doing he says mom i know that they, they, he's the person doesn't do a good the right thing i'm not doing it uh, and he is really good he's very he just calls me every time he gives me he gives me like mom we are here we are doing this i'm gonna be home at what time i should be home i'm like uh, and he negotiates a lot with me, like when I tell him, like, be home in about, like, 30 minutes. And he's like, oh, can I be stay like, for well, well, an hour? I'm like, um, I don't know. When I say something, I should just say, no, you have to be home. And I say 30 minutes, you have to be home 30 minutes. And she negotiates a lot. And then, the, and he is very specific. He gives me uh, exactly what they do and where they are. Um, and, and he's not like he just goes out and he doesn't call me at all. He's very specific and he's very um, responsible on that. Okay. But uh, sometimes I feel like I should not let him spend time with them. Maybe it's my my thinking. I'm like maybe I should find good friends for him. I don't know. I I'm like. I should say that or not, but um, most of his friends, our parents, are um, separated. And uh, one of them recently, we are we were best friends, and um, their mom is now the, in between of you know, in the uh, process of getting divorced. And I'm like, uh, maybe if their parents were together, uh, we could have had them come to our house and you know know them better. But now. Um, I we don't know what to do. Who is being wise, and how should we get together to know them better? Um, just, just those kind of stuff. I feel like maybe if the parents are not with them, they can do whatever they want to do, and there are no instru- you know, instructions with them. They are more free to do whatever they want to do. Nobody is watching them. Yeah, but that's, I mean, we have to give him that freedom. I don't think you can just supervise everything they do. Um, you know, kids need to have some time where they're by themselves We and they figure things out for themselves. We can't just always be monitoring every action they take. And something else you said, I understand that you want him to have good friends, but you said, you know, we can't, should I find him good friends? It's not something we can just order on Amazon and bring for him and say, here, now these are your friends. He has to want to be friends with these people so i think what you want to do more is talk to him about the friends he has and what's going on and also i'm wondering what his relationship is like with you guys um, because that can have an effect on the friends he chooses or how he's going to act or for example if these kids you know it's a very common teenage thing to go through some things of being against authority but their relationship they have with their parents can play a big part in how strong 
this plays out or how it's going to play out. So what is your relationship or like, or what is his relationship like with you and his father? He's, uh, it's very good, especially with his father. He's a really good uh, friend. He talks mostly about everything with him, three. And uh, they have the special activities they do together, and they're very close to each other. We try to be close with him, like, you know, he feels comfortable to talk to us, and we don't judge him about whatever happens. Um, and we ask him, what do you think about what happened, right. what do you think? Um, so okay. we try to be open as we can. Okay. Well, that's good. I don't know if we lost you there for a second, the connection. But, um, yes, if you guys have an open relationship, that's good. We have to also be ready that he's 12, and he's going to be probably a little less open with you as he's entering these teenage years. That's part of being a teenager. So we shouldn't expect him to be as open. We want to hopefully create as open of a relationship where he still does come to you guys and share things with you, and you can be there for him. But we have to be aware that more than likely he's going to go more towards his friends than you guys. That's part of the adolescence, which for a lot of parents can be difficult. They'll say, you know, when he was 10, he would love to go to movies with us and spend time with us. And now he's 14. And that's the last thing he would want to do is to even, you know, spend an evening with us. And we think that means something is wrong. But this is part of becoming a teenager that they need to get more from spending time with their friends. That's actually how they start to learn more about who they are and what the, who they want to be is through their friendships. And we have to give them that space. But I think because of how open he is with you guys, I would talk to him about his friends uh, and make sure, as I always tell parents, that it's not a lecture, that it becomes a dialogue and not a monologue. So it's not just you telling him, this is why I'm worried about your friends. They're like this. They're from broken homes and they're doing bad things and it's going to influence you. And I wouldn't make it that kind of conversation. You can express that you have some concern about some of the things it seems like they do um, and talk to him about that. Although, I mean, these things are not the end of the world, you know, ringing doorbells and maybe throwing some cups I'm not saying I'd encourage them to do it, but those aren't some huge, you know, really bad things that these kids are doing. It's pretty common for kids to do these things. I think some of my friends did stuff like that, too, and I was with them. I can't even remember, and even worse than that. So we know that they're going to do some of these things, so I don't know if these kids even are necessarily a bad influence based on just what you've said of just ringing doorbells and sometimes throwing cups. But, you know, you can have a conversation with him about what he thinks about it, what's going on, and all of that, but I would make it definitely a conversation rather than um, a lecture. Sure. Yeah. So what, is there anything else the kids do that worries you? Um, the other thing uh, that just want to talk about with you, Dr. Farid, mm -hmm. is uh, uh, he, we got his report card yesterday, and he is um, doing great with his grades, and he is good. But the only thing that he has to just put together is that he's the current self-regulation and organizations, and he's like, um, sometimes he, he, I know, I, he, I, I think he has kind of um, ADD that he cannot uh, work with others very good and just concentrate and sometimes he interferes with other stuff. So um, what should I do with this? Um, sometimes they say this is with the age it comes like that and then it goes away. Sometimes I'm like, should I take him to uh, psychologist or I mean, I don't know what to do. Well, again, have you talked to him about it? What does he say? 
Well, yesterday when I talked to him, I said, you know, you are doing really great with your grades. You are perfect. You're the only thing you haven't hasn't completed is those stuff that uh, what you think you can do better about this. And he said, uh, well, um, yeah, I have to stay focused and I have to do it. And then he forgets about it. And then he just, uh, the, like, for example, home, and he starts doing his homework and then, Easily he gets distracted and then he does something else and I'm like, oh, what happened to you? You're supposed to go get your stuff and then uh, do your uh, reading and do this. And then he's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, okay. And I have to keep repeating myself. I'm like, you know what? I'm trying to tell you only once. I don't want to keep telling you to do do, do this, do this. Only once I'm going to tell you. Well, well, but that's what you want to make sure we're not saying it over and over again. And we try to figure out what's what's going on and even let him figure it out you know if it's getting his homework done we have to see without your telling him over and over again what's going to happen does he actually not do the homework or will he kind of do it on his own time and what's going to happen but especially at his age we don't want you to be the one that tells him so what does happen you he, instead of starting his homework he plays xbox or he's on his phone no he doesn't play xbox he's like uh he plays he loves cards he plays starts playing uh, with cars, or she does something uh, different. And sometimes texting. Recently, starts uh, um, getting more active with his uh, phone, and he starts texting sometimes. And then he uh, procrastinates. He's a very procrastinate kid. Okay. He's like, he leaves it for the last minute. I'm like, okay, you know what? It's getting late, and then tomorrow you have school. You need to go to sleep. So he's a uh, he wants to special reading. He has to doesn't like to read at all, and he just leave it for last minute. And then mm-hmm. sometimes it's like ten, ten thirty. Okay, and if I leave him alone, he's gonna leave it for last minute, and he's gonna get it done. Yes. Okay, but we might need to leave him alone a little bit more. I mean, you said his grades are really good, so he's he's making it work somehow. I'm not saying. I'm encouraging procrastination, but we all deal with it, and we have to learn how to deal with it on our own. Someone can't come in and change that for us. You can talk to him about if there's a way, let's say, he wants you to support him. You know, Mom, sometimes I get distracted, so you can hold my phone for, you know, the first 30 minutes that I do my homework or for an hour or whatever it is, but making sure he comes up with it and it's not just you telling him I'm going to take away your phone or do this or do that. But when you tell me he's getting good grades... And he's doing fine academically. I'm not saying there isn't always room for improvement, especially if we can make things less stressful for us um, through like procrastinating less. But you know, we shouldn't assume something really is going wrong because he's still getting his work done. So I don't want you to feel like you have to do something really big or there's something bad. And it seems like you're stressing yourself out more than you need to because he's getting the work done. So to me, if he's finishing his homework. That means you don't need to do anything. There's not you don't need to be involved. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So what is what do you think that bothers you? Is that you worry about him you feel like he should do it more efficiently, you feel like he should do it a different way, or is there really you feel like without you he's not gonna get it done? Uh the the the, the only the only thing Doctor uh Farid is that like um his reading needs to be uh uh Sorry, needs to get improved. Uh, comprehension and reading, we got a tutor for her for him. So um, he needs to work on those. Uh, and I got in the his report card said that he needs to 
uh, work on his reading. And that's why I'm um, kind of like why you are um, uh, not exactly, why you're not paying attention to, so you need to work on this one. Well, you should, uh, first thing you need to work on is after you're done with homework, do your reading for 30 minutes, you should care about it. What, don't you want to bring your grade up on your reading? And he like, okay, yes, yes, okay. But yeah, even in and what then, you just said, there was a lot of should, 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 should. So, you know, if it comes that way, he's going to probably say yes just to, because that seems like the right answer to say to when you say, shouldn't you do this? He's going to say yes, but it's not really making it where he's making the decision. And we don't know. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he does. Probably he does care about his grades the way you're describing him and him being a good student. So we want to join with him rather than making it that we have to tell him to do something or we have to make him care. We have to see if he does care and if he does care what he wants to do and how you can support him. But if you feel like I'm going to have to make him care about this and make him do this, um, you're going to be just creating battles for yourself. And again, you're taking on too much of the responsibility. He has to do it. He has to want to do it. You can support him, but to feel like you have to enforce it or force him to care about this, you, you really are not going to have a good... Uh, experience with that and it's not going to teach him the things you want to teach him anyway which is that he, he should work on the things he needs to work on you know um you know what i mean so if he's having some issue you want to you know you want him to want to deal with it not you make it so that he wants to deal with that issue so i, I would have more conversations I, i'm glad you're saying we negotiate with him we talk with him that's good but in some of what i'm saying it still does seem like there's a lot of giving him orders or telling him he should do this or shouldn't do that and we want to minimize those types of conversations and statements of do and don't do and more focus on what do you want to do? How do you want to deal with this issue? Um, and not even make him feel bad. Don't you care about this? I, you know, that or that's a bad way to start the conversation because sure. you're judging him and you're putting him down. And again, what kind of response can he give you? Maybe he can say no. Uh, but probably the answer is he does care, but he already is going to feel judged about it. So I, I would just be aware of how you're opening up those conversations. And if he's doing well, we want to focus on that too. And that's great. And it shows that you work hard and you do well. And, and we can empathize with him. Yeah, you know, when there's a subject we don't do well in, it's sometimes harder to work on that subject. And even for him, if he's used to getting good grades and being told you're smart, you're smart, you're smart, when he's not good at something, Unfortunately, what it does is it tells him, well, you're not smart in this. And rather than him thinking I should work harder in this topic, he just thinks I want to avoid it because it doesn't feel good to feel not smart. So this is where we have this idea of growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So in the fixed mindset, we're just told repeatedly, you're smart, you're smart, you're great. And that's why you're doing well. Whereas in the growth mindset, we're told you do well because you work hard. And when we tell someone you're smart, that's why you get an A. Then if they get a B in the class, they think, well, I'm just stupid. I can't do this. And they don't think they should work harder. They're just going to avoid that. Whereas if they think it's because they worked hard, they say, oh, I got a B. That means I have to work harder to get an A next time. And so I want you to be aware of that, too, of how you're praising him or how you're talking to him. But maybe he has this fixed mindset where it tells him, well, I'm just not good at reading. So I want to avoid it as much as possible. And that could be part of what leads to the procrastination. So, you know, there's a lot I know I, I just said for you to consider, but I want you just to be aware of how you talk to them about these issues and about schoolwork in general. And we want to make sure that whatever is getting done and whatever plan is coming, he's coming up with is a plan he's coming up with, not one you're giving him. 
because that's not going to work. And especially caring about it, you can't make someone care about something. Either he has to care about it and you talk to him about that or he doesn't. Um, but I don't get the feeling from what you've told me about him that he doesn't care about his grades. Right. Yeah. So. Um, back to the first uh, conversation topic, Dr. Perry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so should I let him go out with his friends sometimes? I think uh, so. I think you want to give him that freedom. I would talk to him more about what's going on. What are they doing? How does he feel about it? You, you know, and if they really are getting into big trouble, no, that's different. But if they're just on their bikes and going out and having some fun, that that can be okay. I don't want them to disturb people. I don't think that's good. But what you described to me wasn't something so huge where I'm like, you can't let him see these kids. But I'd make it more part of conversations with him of, what's going on, what are they doing, and not like an interrogation each time he comes home that he has to tell you everything they did because you're assuming they did really bad things, but of really understanding what's going on and what what these friends are like for him. And if they're doing things he doesn't like, but he still wants to be friends with them, what does that mean? Does he feel like he's stuck with them? Does he feel like he can't find other friends? That's what I'd want to under, more understand him than to really dictate what's going to happen next or what he has to do in, in that regard. Yeah. So I cannot find friends for him. Yeah. I mean, no. Yeah, you know, it's younger kids. You almost can't. And even then, it's hard. It's hard to do it now. He has to like the people. You can explore things and talk to him about it, but you can't pick friends for him and say, "Now this is your best friend." That just doesn't work. That's not genuine friendship. So, um, if you're concerned about these kids and and all that, I would talk to him and see what's drawing them to these kids. You know, if there's something going on there, maybe it's not as bad as you think. But I, I wouldn't get so fixated on I have to find the right friends for him. And even in hearing you say that, it comes back to this issue of you might be trying to control too much of him and what's going on in his life. And that's not going to be good. So we have to relinquish some of that control, especially as he's getting older, to, to let him be independent and make those choices. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for calling. Have a great day. You Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. All right. Going into our next commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Hi Doctor. Hi, thanks Hi. for calling. Um, okay, I don't know how to start. Um, I spoke to you about six, seven months ago last year. Mm-hmm. And um, I am 28 years old. I live in the U.S. Um, I have a bachelor's degree. And I spoke to you last year about um, I was being a marriage. I was married for three and a half years, mm-hmm. and um, my husband was very emotionally abusive toward me. And after I spoke to you for a few times, and I have been through this feeling that I have for almost the beginning of being married to him. So I decided to leave him after we had arguments, and there was just a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And right now, it's been about five months that I left him. We are in the process of getting divorced, but he wants me back, and I just don't know what to do. I have a lot of mixed emotions, and I am 100% sure that I do not want to go back with him. I do love him but I'm not in love with him anymore. Okay. And, so where is the mixed part? 
the next part is the guilt feeling that I have toward him because I'm sure you don't remember this. I remember some of it, but we'll have to, yeah, I remember it sounding more familiar. And I also, I don't know if the radio is on because I hear an echo. You do? I think it's my Bluetooth headphone. Let me yeah. take that off. Um, is it better now? That's better, yes, yes. Um, but some of it, yeah, it's sounding familiar, but it, both for me and for the listeners will assume we're starting from scratch. But um, yeah. you're saying you have a guilty feeling about about what, that he needs you my or husband, that he's not okay without no, you? No, my, my husband had a serious illness. He went through cancer. Mm. And um, he fought it. He's cancer-free now, thank God. But... The reason that I have this mixed emotion and guilt feeling is because he's making me feel that way. Every time he comes and talks to me about it, and his parents does that as well, um, they just give this feeling to me that I left him and I should have been there for him. I was. I was going to get a divorce last year um, when we had problems, and... There was a lot of problems that were going on in my life, and I did love him so much that I wanted to be with him. I just wanted him to try more. He never did. I have been seeing a counselor for over two years now. I asked him to do so so we can work on our marriage, and he never wanted to do that. He never wanted to see a doctor. He Mm. never wanted to talk. We lacked in communication. I wanted to, but he didn't. He never sat down to talk to me about our problems. Did he say why? Does he say he doesn't believe he has problems or he doesn't believe that therapy helps? What what does he say? He says that, I am sorry to say this, but he says they don't know anything. Yeah, we don't know much. Well, it's not that we know anything necessarily. Uh, and a lot of times people think that who's who are who's a therapist to tell me what to do, and there is some of that, but it's more of helping you understand each other. But yes, yeah, so his thing is that who? How could someone else tell me? Is it just no one could give me advice, or especially when it comes to psychology, he thinks there's nothing they can know that I don't know? He used to say before he used to say that no one can fix our life. We are the two. I said, yeah, that's what I say too. Let's sit down and talk, mm-hmm. you know? But he's bossy and controlling. We would sit down and talk sometimes, and he would want me to agree with him in everything. And if I don't agree, he would just curse at me, leave, and, like, argue. You know, he had this anger problem that he could not talk in a regular tone Mm. like he would always yell break stuff or just get up and leave the room there was never a normal conversation and does he see his anger as a problem right now because he wants me back he does and he he has been doing stuff that i always wanted him to do during the three years i was married to him and he has never done those before and I just can't trust them anymore. Honestly, like what kind of things? Right now, um, not right now. That that goes back to November. He started texting me in November. He would text me like, "Good morning, beautiful. Um, I am so sorry that I hurt you." 
I really want you back in my life. I'm going to work hard to, um, you know, to fix. I have understanding that I have done so much, like, uh, damage to you, and I want you to come back. I will do anything you ask. And the only thing I asked him to go to see a doctor, that's the only and then thing what did I he asked say? him to do. He said, okay, but he didn't do it. Okay, so he checked- he's not willing to do anything you ask. He's just, like you said, it seems like he wants to have you back but not to actually be with you in a, the way you want to be with him. So it's yeah. more about having you than having a good relationship with you. He just doesn't want to lose you um, if you're saying that. Now, he's saying, I'll do anything you want, but he's not even doing the first thing you're asking for. Um, he's doing the texting thing. I'm sure you can find an app that can send you good morning texts or something if you'd like. But, um, but other than yeah. that, as far as doing something to work on the relationship, it doesn't seem like He's doing that, and and you're saying his anger does sound pretty bad. Where he's saying he's yelling and saying things and breaking things. Was was he ever physically yeah. abusive towards you? No, because I am very, which is not good. I'm very patient, and every time we got into argument, I would stop and just not respond. And I said, I know you're upset right now, and I know, like, I would talk to him in a like very nice tone, and I would tell him, I know you're angry right now. This is now how you're supposed to talk to your wife. You're going to regret it tomorrow, so watch what you say. Mm-hmm. This is what I always tell him. But he was like, no, and he would add up more stuff to it. And, you know, I just couldn't, cont- like, I tried every way. I tried anything that my counselor to- told me to do as a woman to, like, fight for my life, mm-hmm. to keep him, and try to be good so I can change him. But nothing worked. And now... Well, you can't... I mean, you can't be... You changing him is not about you being good or being good enough. He has to want to change. First of all, we really... people Change is hard to begin with. But someone has to want to change. We can't change them. We definitely shouldn't take it as our... One, our responsibility to change someone. And then relate it to that as some kind of weakness or something we've done wrong if they haven't changed. He's made it... It seems like he's saying he doesn't believe he needs to change or wants to change. I know in these texts and things he's saying recently, he's saying something different, but it seems like in your experience with him, he made it very yeah. clear that he doesn't think he's wrong in what he's doing. And maybe no. that you're, does he, does he tell you that you're the problem? Yes. Sometimes. Okay. Okay. Let me tell you what yeah. happened. Um, last week, um, that was the last conversation we had with his parents. And um, I just, told his parents that I know we have been having this conversation over and over and I don't think this is going to work anymore and I'm just going to bring that to the conclusion and say I'm not coming, I'm not going back with him and his parents said okay, uh, we understand and let's talk to him too Let's whatever you have told us let's tell him, I said I have been talking to him, I have been telling him that if he doesn't do that I am not going back so they called him, he came to the house, and we sat down and we talked. The moment he walked in, and I told him, hey, I spoke to your parents, and I told them what I have told you before. Um, I don't think our relationship is going to work out, and I'm not coming back home. He's, he just started with the tone that I never liked. If he really wants to change, he needs to change his tone. He kind of yelled and said, in Farsi, he's like, uh, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> he's like, then why did you tell, tell me to come here? Um, you just wanted to put me down. If you didn't want me, uh, you shouldn't just 
told me, I said, hey, I didn't ask you to come. Your mom called you, and I'm not trying to bring you down by telling you I don't want to live with you. It, I'm just saying you're not good together. You are a good person. You you might be a good person for someone else, but I'm just saying me and you, it, it's not working out. He said, no, that's not how love is. You used to tell me that you love me so much. I said, I still love you, but it's not working out. And, well, I and love is not an love is. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a book called Love is Never Enough. Love is something, but love is not, uh, you need love, but it's not like if you have love, then any relationship with work can work with any two people, especially no matter what they do. No, uh, the love has yeah. to be there, but how you act and interact and then also how compatible you are is important and that has to be there. So it, it's not about just love. And it seems like clearly you're not happy. Now, what's interesting is at early uh, when we were talking, you said I'm 100% sure that I shouldn't be with him, but it doesn't seem like you're so 100% sure if you're obviously calling me and you're considering all these things. Another thing you mentioned is guilt, and that's never a reason to be with someone. Obviously, that's not going to work. But what I'm looking at is we're about to get into a commercial break, and I have one last segment, and I want to keep you to talk more about this to see what's going on, what has happened, and to help you, you're going to obviously have to make this decision yourself, but see if we can talk a bit more about what you want to do there, okay? Okay. Just hang online. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fajr Luck. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Uh, you still there? Uh, yes, I'm Okay. There. All right. So you were talking about the situation you're in. You were married for about three and a half years. About five months ago, you decided to leave the marriage. You said uh, you described him as being emotionally abusive, but also not willing to uh, go to counseling together or on his own. And now you feel like you're in a dilemma because although it seems like you feel very strongly not to get back with him, you mentioned some feelings of guilt and maybe you have more uncertainty than you uh, mentioned when you said you're 100% sure mm -hmm. about things. But I'm let... not uncertain okay. about this. Um the feeling that I, 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 it might not be guilt, I just don't know how to describe it. Um, I don't know how to describe the feeling I have. I just want to be confident enough when they accuse me of not being there for them to not care enough, like to not care about what they are accusing me of yes. doing. And, um, I know I have low self-esteem, and that might be one of the issues, because I have been in that marriage for so long, mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons I've been there. But I just want to know, what do I need to do to be strong and not let what they tell me and accuse me to bother me? You know, I don't know. I just yeah, no, you're, what you're saying yeah. makes a lot of sense, and yeah. I'm glad you were able to acknowledge the likely low self-esteem is affecting you right now and was maybe a big part of what kept you in that kind of a marriage for three and a half yeah. years. And we don't want it to be the reason that you make a decision you don't want to make just because of that. So we know, you know, you have to remember where they're coming from, that they want you to be back with him. 
And so they're trying to use whatever tactics or things they're going to say that you left him, that you're being a bad person. And unfortunately, because of your own the low self-esteem and how you might doubt yourself and who you are, you'll hear what they say, or when they say it, at least it will affect you a lot. So if they say you're being a bad person, although you're saying you don't believe it or you just think that's what they think, it seems like it is affecting you, and so you don't want to be seen that way. Because if you're waiting for them to be happy about your decision, you're always going to be waiting. So they're never going to be happy about the choice you're making. And very often people who will say they have low self-esteem or in this way have a hard time doing what they feel is right for them, irrespective of what other people might think of it, you have a hard time just doing what you want if they don't like it. So if it makes them unhappy, you feel like somehow you have to either make them happy with your decision or you have to do what they want. And that's not, either neither one of those is going to happen. You have to just accept that this is what I want to do. And yes, I get that they don't want it. He wants the relationship to continue, but you're not happy and you feel like it's not going to get better. So you can't expect him to be happy with that decision. He's not going to be, and neither is his family. So, um, you know, just you have to prepare yourself that it's not going to feel good if you decide to follow through with this decision, but also you can talk, uh, deal with how it's not feeling good for you and realize that it's because you're putting too much weight into other people's opinions when what, what you want is ultimately what matters. Yeah. I was talking to his parents and they were saying that he's a good guy. He didn't mean to do that to you. He didn't, you know, meant to say that. I said, you know what, I cannot wait for 10, 15 years and translate what he says forever. Mm -hmm. I cannot sit, like, every time he curses at me or yells at me or disrespect me, I I know he does. He might not mean it at all, but I can't sit there and wait until he understands one day that he's wrong and he's not supposed to do that. And Well, also, he's not even saying he wants to change that or he, that it was really wrong what he did. And, you know, the yeah. way they're presenting it, like he made a mistake, um, yeah. the way you're describing it, it wasn't one action that happened one time because sometimes we make a mistake or we lose our cool one time and we do something yeah. out of character. And we might say, OK, I can accept that even if it might be hard. And even that sometimes can be if what they did was bad enough, we might not be able to accept. But you're talking about a repeated yeah. pattern, the way at least you're explaining it. So it wasn't one time he got mad at you. Day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's different. So, look, his family, you know, I wouldn't even get, his family should not make this decision for you and him anyway. What his parents want really is, to me, not even important. Um, it's what okay. you and him want. And really for you, just what you want is what you have to base your decision on. Why I say you and him is because if you ask him to work on things and really you felt good about him working on things, um, then maybe you could be okay. But if he doesn't, then then that's not going to work. But really, his what his parents, their opinion for you guys getting married in the first place really wasn't important as long as they approved and that was okay. But they're not making the decision for you guys then and they definitely shouldn't make the decision for you now. True. And I told him the last time I spoke to him, he was blaming me for everything that has happened. And I just looked at him back and I said, okay, you're just repeating all this back and saying that this is my fault and all that problems we have was because of me. Why do you still want me back if mm -hmm. I'm that bad? If I'm like, I have this much negativity toward your life, why do you want me back? That's a good point. What and did he say? He just like 
he was silenced, and then he was like, because deep inside, I know you're a good person. I said, you know, that's not good enough for me to get mm-hmm. back with you. Yeah. That's not good enough. I, and that makes sense. And I was not like this before. Two years of counseling <laughs> has made me to be this strong. So what, 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 yeah. what was it like before then, when you say you were not like this? Before? I was scared. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I made a mistake. I am so sorry. I would apologize all the time for nothing that I haven't done. Like, I didn't do anything. Yeah. So that day, he was like, uh, he was like, so you think you don't, you didn't do anything uh, to make this marriage not work? I said, you know what? I always apologize for things I haven't done to keep my marriage, but you know what? I have not done anything. I have done everything I could for this marriage. I have seen a doctor. I have, like, walked through everything that he told me to do to make this marriage work. I have talked to you, like, respected you, wanted to communicate, like, work through things, um, respected your family and friends so for you to see it, but... You never saw anything, you know, that the goods in me. He never thought everything about me was a negative toward him. He never liked the way I looked. He never liked the way I talked. Um, Everything was a problem. But then a few months ago when we had a conversation, he told me one thing that I almost got all the answers that I needed. When I was living with him, I had this question in my head, what am I doing wrong for him not to, like, want to talk to me? What am I doing wrong as a wife that he does not like me at all? And he told me a few months ago, he said, Regina, I am sorry, oh, I said my name. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, shit. <laughs> he was like, hey, um, the reason that I did that to you is because I wanted to treat you badly so you can leave. Wow. I said, oh, my God. Like, I said, you know what? Actually, thank you for telling me that because I was always looking for that answer because I was like, what am I doing wrong? I don't even know if that's... I don't know, I don't know how true that is. He said I was treating you bad intentionally so you would leave him? Yes. Okay, but then now he wants you back. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. It's not very clear. It does seem like he definitely was treating you bad, and I don't know if he had that exact intention of having you leave, but... um Nonetheless, one thing, you know, you were saying it it seems like you take everything and this is what someone with low self-esteem will do, but you take everything so personally. So if he's mean to you, you would take it as I'm doing something wrong as a wife, as a woman. And he unfortunately would reinforce that by telling you it's you, it's you, it's you. And so you believed it. And so, you know, it was able to continue in that way that you felt like it's me that's creating even his anger or me that's making things go so poorly. But I think maybe it was it was probably from the therapy and also over time you came to that realization that that wasn't the case. And I'm sure you've done some things that haven't been good in the marriage when he asks you. So I'm sure you've yeah. contributed, but like you said, you would like to work on things and you've tried to work on things and haven't seen that same effort from him. Um, but, you know, yeah. going back to the idea of guilt, you see a lot of people staying in a relationship out of guilt, staying in a marriage or even just before marriage, they feel either guilty of hurting the person. They feel guilty of what is the person going to do without yeah. me? Or maybe in this case, you feel like guilty of, am I, a bad person like they're saying if I don't get back with him and a relationship can never be formed on the base of guilt or can never continue on guilt it's never going to be a happy relationship we should want to be with the person we should enjoy the relationship and it shouldn't be to prove to yourself or to anyone else that you're a good person and not a bad person that's never going to work 
Exactly. So, and yeah. I don't know. I just have so much. This is just part of it. And I think about my life every day. And I think about tomorrow and how I can change stuff to have a better future. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just have so much mixed emotions. And I want to make a better me. You know, I don't want to repeat the same mistake. And I have a few more months to... I still haven't applied for the divorce, okay. but um, we have been separated because we haven't had the papers, and there is some rules in my religion that um, it's going to take a year for us to get a divorce. So, okay. um, all this stuff has been holding us back, uh, but I just want to—I wanted to talk to you so I can—I I, want to know how I can be strong and not let all these bother me and how I can, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Like, Well, let me you, ask you something. You calling okay. in, was it in some way to get here from me that you're not a bad person if you leave him or you don't go back with yes. him? Yeah. Yes. Like, because he had a cancer mm. and they're making me feel guilty about this and he was the one that wanted me to leave. I did not want to leave at all. Mm-hmm. He was the one that started it. And what, did he want you to leave when he was sick, or was after when he was better? Okay. Um, before he got, we found out he had cancer. You had a court date to go to. He applied for a divorce last year, and some things happened, and. We found out he was sick, so I told my counselor, I'm not going to leave him. I love this person. I'm going to be there for him. And I was. Mm-hmm. And a week after we found out he was cancer-free, oh, my God, this person was totally the same person that he was last year. He was nice throughout his sickness, I guess. I thought this is going to change him because cancer is a big deal. Um, I thought he's going to appreciate me more, appreciate life more, and this didn't happen. A week after he was cancer-free, we started hanging out with people, going out, and our arguments came back again. And he's just very sensitive on everything, like little things that, I don't It's just, if I talk about it in details, it would be so silly, like, what things we argued about. And we didn't actually argue anymore. He would just not talk to me. He would ignore me. And that that's his problem. Well, you and know, the, the things, would, you know, I'm, I, we only have, like, about one or two minutes left, so I'm going to try to, we'll have to wrap it okay. up pretty quick. But um, oftentimes the things couples will argue about will be silly when you look at it, and you'll hear that word a lot, silly, yeah. like, oh, so silly to argue about it. And in a way it can yeah. be, but also... A lot of times we have those silly arguments because there's a lot deeper issues that are going on. So an argument about who took out the trash or why don't you take out the trash can seem so silly, but it could be coming from a much deeper place of you never do the things I like or I don't feel good about how you treat me or other issues. So um, I'm sure a lot of the things you guys fought about might have been silly as far as the topics, but it seems like there were some pretty big, deep issues. So I, I don't want you to make any decision based on me even telling you you're not 
a bad person or you are a bad person or you're a good person or not a good person. You have to make a decision that makes sense for you, but you can't let other people tell you that you're good or bad for making the decision that you think is right. If you feel like there really is no hope for this marriage based on what he's shown you and that he doesn't want to make things better, then you, you already know your decision. And you told me it's, you're 100% clear. And it seems like your yeah. logic knows 100% it's not the right decision, but emotionally you're afraid of these other parts of being judged or judging yourself and being a bad person. And you're letting that yeah. make the decision or at least make it harder for you to make the decision. So I would just hope you make the decision based on what you think is right and realize that it's not up to other people to tell you if you're a good or bad person. You have to feel good about what you're doing. And being in a relationship out of guilt is never going to work. And you said the process of getting divorced will take some time for you anyway. So you would have that time to reflect and see if there is any potential. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, you can even start that process. So make sure you know in your heart that what you're doing is right and feel okay about whatever decision you make and that other people can't tell you you're good or you're bad. That's not, uh, no one has that authority and you have to feel good about who you are. Okay. All right. Well, good luck. If you want to check Thank in again, you. you can obviously call back, but good luck to you. Thank you so much sure, for your pleasure. advice. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That's the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and listeners. Amir, who was in the studio before, and Farhuda, who was here to wrap up the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.